Hi everybody and welcome back to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. If you enjoy these podcasts and want to help us grow and expand our audience, there's a few simple ways you can help us. You can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, Facebook, uh, search Fantasy Animation, um, and you should find us nice and easily. On Twitter, it's FanAnim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. Uh, give us a follow, retweet, give us a like, um, that would really help. You can also subscribe um, via iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, I believe it's now called these days, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Podbean, all the various uh, podcasting networks, we're on them all. Um, give us a subscribe, um, uh, please, because that helps us um, go up in the rankings and, and make us more visible on those profiles. And if you're on Apple, uh, give us a rating, that always helps as well. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy the show. Hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. So this is, I guess, uh, in many ways uncharted territory for the Fantasy Animation Podcast um, for three reasons. The first reason is that this is the first podcast that we're doing sort of remotely. So Alex and I are in different parts of the UK um, recording this online, so hopefully you'll uh, you'll bear with us. Uh, the second reason is that we're doing a film today that was uh, voted for by... Uh, fantasy animation uh, sort of community, the network, um, with the hashtag feelgoodfananim. So we'll reveal the title of that uh, shortly, but it's the chance for us to, to sort of engage with a, a film that, that people have actually voted for and, and pitted against other films. Um, and then thirdly, it's the, the first time we've got a returning guest on the podcast. Um, so today we're going to be doing uh, The Emperor's New Groove, a Disney animated feature film, and we're delighted to be joined uh, by Astrid Goldsmith, um, who you'll remember from a podcast we've done previously, The Valley of Guanji. Uh, as a reminder, Astrid is an award-winning uh, stop-motion animator. Um, and so, Astrid, thank you very much for, for joining us on the first virtual remote fantasy animation podcast. It is a sheer delight, you guys, and I'm so happy to be here. Oh, good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're sort of through. And actually, I think you were the person that, that um, suggested the film. You were the person when we kind of put it to the vote. Alex and I um, put out a bunch of, of feelers online on social media. Uh, and you suggested or you proposed or one of a couple of people, I think, that proposed um, The Emperor's New Groove. So this is obviously slightly different from uh, The Valley of Guanji, or maybe it's not. I don't know. Um, but uh, what was it? What is it about the film? Why was that your kind of feel-good fantasy animation um, example? Uh, well, I think it's um, obviously we'll we'll get into this when we're talking about it. But it is um, it's got you know it's a comedy. It's like an out and out comedy, um, and it doesn't really take anything too seriously. And it's you know it's just something that you can watch over and over again. Um, I actually wrote my dissertation on it. Um, about I don't know 18 years ago um and you know and I think that I obviously watched it a lot then and it's something that you know I can I can watch over and over again I don't really get sick of it and it's um I just find it you know just delightful and when you're asking for a film that makes you feel good that's just the first one I think of Perfect. So, so actually, I'm in a sort of similar boat. I wrote when I was an MA student, wrote a, a dissertation on um, on kind of Disney of this period. Um, 
on the flip side, Alex has not seen the film, had not seen the film um, up until a, a couple of days ago where we did a live sort of tweet along. Um, and we were talking a little bit off air about I was trying to get Alex's feelings on the film. And, and you said that it took you an hour to get into it. So uh, what did you think of the film? Can you I guess can you uh, understand why it was why it was kind of proposed as a, as a feel good fan anime? Yeah, I, I, I hadn't seen it until we watched it on, on Monday and uh, it took me about an hour to work out what on earth it was and then which which is an unfortunate for an hour and sort of 17 minute film uh, with about five minutes of credits, which meant I only really spent 12 minutes watching a film I understood. Yeah. Um, and and I haven't written my dissertation uh. on it, so I, I'm feeling uh, I'm feeling that I am I'm the luddite as always in, in the room. But I, but I enjoyed it. I think I think once I worked out, as Asif was saying, that the film sort of uh, is is gleefully uninterested in um, you know narrative significance, consequence, um, you know anything to do with sort of. Um, you know, the sort of the standard rhetoric of what we talk about when we talk about what makes Disney films great, which is getting us immersed in the world, getting us immersed in the story. The virtue of this movie seems to be that it wants to disrupt all of that and keep us constantly with an arched eyebrow towards everything. And once I got that, um, I started really digging it and I'd love to rewatch it again now. But um, but it certainly was, a, was an oddity um, for me, having only experienced it for the first time. But it's interesting because you said that it took you an hour to kind of figure out what it was. And then you've got, uh, as Astrid said, you know, it's this sort of out and out comedy. Uh, I guess what's interesting for me is that what it what it was wasn't what it sort of used to be. And, and one of the big things around the film, certainly um, during its production. So this is like it comes out in 2000 um, its production in the late 1990s. One of the things or one of the biggest sort of stories around the film is that it changed quite significantly from what uh, it had originally been conceived of or intended as, as this sort of um, what it seems to be a sort of epic, um, something historically e epic that maybe falls in line with some of um, uh, other animated features of the of the late 1990s. So I'm thinking of like the Road to El Dorado or the Prince of Egypt. It seems to be very much, which were made by sort of different different studios. It seems to be very much in that vein. That's how it was originally conceived. Um, and actually, Astrid, you said that it has kind of previous titles or old titles. It, it wasn't always going to be the Emperor's New Group. I remember you you tweeting along and saying that it had this kind of other life. Yeah. So it was originally the Kingdom of the Sun. Um... And it was originally a Roger Allers film who was one of the directors of The Lion King. And he was, because The Lion King was obviously a massive commercial success, he was given pretty much carte blanche to do what he wanted and to create what he wanted. And so, yeah, he, him and his production team went on a kind of massive research trip to um, Peru and really got immersed in the culture. And I think the original story of The Kingdom of the Sun was... Um, kind of a Prince and the, Pau Prince and the Pauper tale um, with a lot of mysticism. And it was, yeah, it was a drama, a, ro a romance, epic musical drama with um, lots of songs by Sting. Um, I mean, nobody's mourning the loss of those, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> but, um, the, but the, yeah, it kind of all went sour. I think a lot of things happened in the late 90s, um, and particularly uh, Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame just did not perform as well as they needed to at the box office. Um, and so I think they were, Disney were kind of grabbling around trying to find 
um, you know, alternative solutions to, uh, to, to their, you know, what they conceived of as a problem for the studio, which was that, you know, they needed to claw all their money back from really expensive productions. Um, so, yeah, they uh, sort of halfway through production, they scrapped, I think it was four years of work. Um, and the director was forced to uh, give up the project and a new director was uh, brought on um, who, you know, took it in a completely different direction and they just turned it into a comedy. And I think I read um, that it was uh, the first ty- the first Disney animated feature to have such an extensive overhaul since Pinocchio, which is, you know, obviously a long, long time before this one. So at what point did uh, the llamas come into the story? I think that's the crucial question to ask at this point. <laughs> no, I think there were always llamas in the story. So in the original story, there was um, the emperor and I think Pacha was 18 and the emperor's body double, basically. So they switch places and somehow the emperor gets turned into a llama. So I think that was pr- pretty much the only story element that, was uh, retained throughout the process. Interesting. I mean, it feels like I don't know these sorts of narratives. You said, Astrid, that um, the you know the late a lot of stuff was going on in the nineties, and it feels yes, I, I I agree with that. I think the nineties are actually an interesting period generally, and you have you have and we've talked about this in previous podcasts. You have Disney's shift, um, as you mentioned, between these big budget Broadway style musicals. Uh, decade begins with. Um, you know, uh, uh, Aladdin and, and Lion King. And then we have that slight shift to Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is obviously something that we've we've previously covered. Um, then you have in the latter part of the 90s, a broader industrial shift with regards to computer generated imagery, the rise of the computer animated film, Disney's relationship with uh, Pixar, the sort of rise of DreamWorks animation. And and I mentioned a couple of the films that I think sort of come to bear a little bit on the intended epic nature of, of the kingdom of the sun as it, as it was. Um, so DreamWorks is 1998 film, uh, uh, Prince of Egypt, and then a couple of years later, uh, DreamWorks is uh, The Road to El Dorado, which comes out the same year as Emperor's New Groove. So you have these broader sort of industrial shifts um, the rise perhaps or the re-emergence I guess of of something that kind of closely resembles uh, a classical Hollywood studio system um, where you have sort of brand recognition then you go into the 2000s and then it kind of explodes really but um, it seems like a lot of and I don't know whether this I know Alex is interested in sort of Disney history and and the way that Disney sort of narrates its own history uh, and these sorts of um, myths that survive within the Disney, you know, fantasies of Disney, I guess, if you like. But there's something interesting about um, narratives of within Disney animation of films. I think the French uh, have a turn, I'm trying to re- remember now my my uh, undergraduate film studies, like a film modi <laughs> films. And I'm sorry to the, the French contingent listeners for that appalling pronunciation. But um, these films that have that sort of production history where they are wronged or they are cut up and and edited in different ways and it's not what the director originally intended and then out of it comes this sort of film that you know people love and, and whatever and hey despite the the production tribulations look where we are now um i don't know whether that necessarily applies to to this film i do remember um again conducting research around it looking at the movie and and remembering that it had this whole kind of thing this whole um uh, other life which is sort of crystallized in um i think i'm right in thinking that sting's wife at the well i was gonna say sting's wife at the time he's still married to her uh truly styler making this documentary that would become the sweatbox, this sort of behind the scenes heart of darkness style 
documentary that accompanied the production of what turned out to be quite a kind of convoluted and uh, problematic film in the end. Yeah, which Disney have buried since. <laughs> so yeah, they've uh, they they I think one of Sting's stipulations when he signed on to the do the songs for the project was that his wife would have full access to the team so she could do a documentary and um and then i think they had a kind of 6 day release of the documentary and and then it just went back into the disney vaults and has never seen the light of day because i think it is a really revealing i mean you you shared the youtube link which is actually a a pirated link but um it's a really really interesting look at the kind of behind the scenes of how you know of the studio during that period and also of how this film uh kind of this film kind of came into being um and I think yeah all of that stuff has kind of fed into the mythology of of the production of this film um because you can see quite clearly in in the sweat box those interviews with the Disney animators and you know they're all terrified to you know not be towing the line but it's obviously this very turbulent production where everything's just getting thrown out each week you know more and more things are just getting thrown out and replaced with the all these outlandish elements which I think if you've been going along a track as a filmmaker um you know making this kind of very beautiful realistic um kind of Peruvian epic that you know means a lot to everyone uh and that kind of gets thrown out and you you're just making this kind of what what is essentially quite a silly buddy comedy about a talking llama I think that you know that's kind of a, a big emotional shift you know for for anyone is there a sense from the documentary i haven't seen it because i again i'm the woefully underprepared one for this week's episode um but is there a sense from the documentary about any um stylistic shift in that because it sounds like the production they had in mind before this thing kind of shifted gear three four years down the line was very much um larger budgeted perhaps the kind of epic animation that some of the earlier hits of the decade suggested towards and then what we've got instead is a is a very stylistically different movie which I'm sure we'll talk about but is there is there a sense that that was part of the right we need to change not only what this thing is saying but what it how it looks while it's saying it yeah definitely and I think um several animators either quit or were replaced because they didn't like the direction that the animation was going in because they had thought that it was you know uh you know, that they were animating these kind of serious, complex, interesting characters. And then that got changed. So I know that the, um, I can't remember his name, but the animator who was in charge of Yzma, um, he quit because he, yeah, he didn't, he, he went to work on Lilo and Stitch, I think, halfway through the production because he couldn't take the direction that they were going in with her. Um, but yeah, and I think obviously, you know, I mean, everyone sort of thinks that Disney have unlimited, you know, deep pockets. But I think that they there was definitely a financial consideration. They had spent so much money in pre-production that was just wasted. Then um, they also had to close down the production for six months while they kind of retooled the story. Um, and so when they kind of got back up again to do Emperor's New Groove, I think that there just wasn't the resources to do kind of, you know, extensive um you know beautiful back you know backdrops that were you know that in that kind of highly detailed classic disney style um so yeah i think that um certainly visually stylistically there's there were definitely cuts and you can see that in the finished film 
Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, Alex mentioned at the start that there is this sort of abridged quality to it. Um, I mean, it's, it's tricky perhaps to, to, to not see that or, or, or that you're always looking when you know the production history of something like this, that you're always kind of reading that into uh, the construction of the narrative, the development of the characters. Um, I wonder whether the particular sort of tonal shifts in the film and the kind of cutaway, I think the cutaway gags or the, 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 the rapid pacing of it in lots and lots of ways that seems to anticipate um, kind of stuff like Family Guy or Bojack Horseman or all these sorts of quite witty and quick and, and very um, economical narratives uh it's very difficult not to see that within the broader sort of industrial um context anything relating to character development or narrative that seems slightly different to the norm you sort of instantly kind of read that into into the um into the um, wider context but at the same time the film if you think about the disney films that come come after it they are i wouldn't say as equally as quote-unquote experimental but they have a similar thing and they don't have the production history that this film does. So I wonder whether actually we sort of give too much credit to the the Frank, and I don't know, but it seems to be that the films that come after it, so Atlantis, The Lost Empire, which um, borrowed many of the animators when the production shut down of Kingdom of the Sun, some of the animators moved across to Atlantis, The Lost Empire, which is this kind of like anime influenced uh, retelling of, of Jules Verne. Um, then you have Lilo and Stitch, um, which again, from what I remember, is quite a slightly well a different a different kind of movie. I do remember actually more than the film itself. I remember the the teaser trailers for Lilo and Stitch, which had um, uh, I think it's Stitch because I don't I can't remember, but Stitch is the little animal, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yes. Um, gets inserted into lots and lots of different classic Disney or Renaissance era Disney, I should say, um, scenes, and that's part of a promotion is that you have this sort of foreign force influencing. The renaissance period um and then after lilo and stitch you get treasure planet and i would argue that it's not really until 2003 and the release of brother bear that you that you get something kind of closely resembling uh a disney style and then you you only have uh one more cell animated feature film and then disney are off making computer animated films so i think this early 2000 period of emperor's new groove atlantis lilo and stitch treasure planet are four films that kind of come together that you could that you could group together, and and I'd and I'd argue that um, some of the the well, I'd be very surprised if some of the um, the tonal elements or the tonal shifts in Emperor's New Groove were not subsequently then adopted in later films, um, but but that then don't who, who then don't have that sort of um, production history behind it that weren't um, truncated that didn't have these problems, but I would argue are, are as much. Um, or as experimental, I guess, um, and as creative as as the Emperor's New Groove. But um, it seems like this this movie is sets in motion something with the Disney Studio that's slightly different from the films that come before. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I hence why it took me an hour to to sort of to to get with it. And I think the the way I ended up sort of um, uh, finding a way to view it was by sort of thinking it as a as an anarchic comedy, as as a as a film that. Um, kind of like what you were saying with Lilo and Stitch. And I remember that trailer, actually, now you mention it, that trailer where Stitch is sort of inserted back into old um, uh, Disney movie, Disney sort of iconic scenes. Um, and the way the film sort of um, tells its narrative, tells its story and, and, and the, the, the use of humour and the constant sort of um, arch references and uh, fourth wall breakings and sort of postmodern-esque um, deconstructions of, of the sort of story building and, and the world building 
um, made me sort of feel like essentially what I'm watching here is is a film, a, a sort of a Disney film told by an assembly, told by the Marx Brothers almost, like, you know, a, a film that is derailed by its own concept and derailed by its own style. And, and that derailment is the pleasure in it. It's the it's the it's the it's it's almost like it's articulating a, a pleasure in its failure to be to take itself seriously um almost like it's a parody of a disney movie um and and that's what i worked out about an hour in i don't mean that therefore it's mocking disney but what i mean is that it's it's not do, it's the rhetoric's different the direction is deconstructionalist rather than constructionist yeah i think it's definitely playing with our expectations of what a disney movie is and i would say that i would say that there are points where it could be read as mocking the Disney model and its kind of slavish adherence to the kind of narrative structure rules. Um, you know, um, I mean, I think even, I don't know if you noticed this and I'm, I might be reading too much into it, but the, um, the very opening shot of the film is almost exactly the same as the opening shot of Tarzan. So where the camera's kind of going through the dense foliage of the jungle um and obviously Tarzan was uh the last I mean before Fantasia 2000 and Dinosaur which are slightly different types of Disney film Tarzan was like the last big um you know drawn animated uh, feature from Disney uh, in 99 before Emperor's New Groove and I just wonder if it is that kind of like a comment on you know our expectations of classic Disney world building um, you know, and, and kind of uh, world building through lavish, like an atmospheric artwork to establish that world. And then it's kind of immediately undercut by the style of character anima- animation in Emperor's New Groove and the kind of knowing voiceover narration. Absolutely. I, I definitely I'd not made the link to, to Tarzan, which is interesting because well, it did it did remind me that that you get these movies in Disney history that are notable for particular reasons, i.e. that they uh, make lots of money, that they are this kind of multimedia franchise, but also that they might uh, present a moment where Disney have have innovated. So with Tarzan, you have this deep canvas technology, which was used to create this luscious sort of um, jungle scape. And then you get uh, Fantasia and then you get Dinosaur, which is one of its kind of first sustained. Dinosaur is a a bit of a a tricky one anyway in Disney's history. But the Emperor's New Groove just kind of has this yeah it's just it's just there it's just it didn't it didn't um i mean it probably did within the confines of the disney studio but it's not something that crops up in in moments of technological innovation it's it always appears in disney's history is this is this move where there was this shift towards a kind of exactly what you're saying a more um reflexive um postmodern dare i say as 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 we've mentioned but this sort of uh, reflexive rhetoric um that as you say is signaled immediately from that shift between the opening l- sort of luscious um uh setting and then you get uh that voiceover i'm that llama and then you get tom jones or or a, a drawing <laughs> of tom jones if you like um and actually the narrative the the narrative voiceover is one of the most interesting bits because it seems to continually um intercede or intrude onto the film uh and then ca- he can have a kind of conversation with his own voiceover so i find that really interesting so yeah i think that definitely the the opening narrative voice where he says oh i'm that llama and you just have the shot of this sad crying llama in the pouring rain it's okay we're doing something different now we are we are um 
the fixed that sort of fixed hyper-realist Disney register that we we sort of know. Um, the film is throwing that dare I say throwing it off. It's throwing off Disney's aesthetic groove. There I've said it. <laughs> but um, but to to trace elements of continuity as well. Essentially, it's also extending aspects of some of these earlier movies and 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 what i'm thinking of here is particularly you know you know if you think about the genie in aladdin um uh, or even like timon and pumba in the lion king these characters that are allowed to sort of comment on the story as it's progressing and make comments about disney in the process you know you get um uh you know the disney uh, the genie uh, dressing up a pinocchio or, you know, doing gags about, um, you know, pulling the screen up and saying, made you look and all that kind of stuff. Or, um, you know, Zazu singing It's a Small World. Um, you know, they're, they're there in these other movies. It's just that they're sort of much more periphery. And it feels like what they're doing here is 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 cranking it up and letting those elements take centre stage for, for, for this one production. Um, and the results are this sort of, you know, yeah, crazy... Um, madcap ride well yeah rather than being the domain of a comedic sidekick like in all of those examples that you just mentioned um yes it's the main character who has who you know establishes very early on both in the opening scene and the opening song um you know like a a almost total control as both the narrator and star over the narrative order and space and time of the film, you know, and how he kind of switches effortlessly between different presents and pasts in terms of timeline, you know, even within the opening song, he's doing that. Um, yeah, which is, you know, kind of confusing. It must have been confusing for you, Alex. I, I, I feel for you. <laughs> well, confusing in the sense that I sort of, I, you know, it wasn't that I was completely, um, you know, at odds with the film style. I was sort of going with it, but I, I, but I was struggling to find a way. I was trying to find a way of meshing this all together because it sort of does shift every five, ten minutes. And I, and I the question... I I was settling on is how much of this am I supposed to take seriously? Because certainly in the first sort of 10, 15 minutes, there's some relatively, you know, there's some uh, legwork to be done to try and establish some sort of narrative stakes. Um, and I was trying to work out about um, the villain and characteristically, I've forgotten every single character's name in this film. Uzma. Um, yeah, y- Uzma, is it? Uzma. Uzma. Yeah. Uzma. Okay. Um, Isma's sort of, is she supposed to be maniacal? Are we supposed to, you know, dislike her? I mean, yes, but, you know, is she supposed to be held up on the same stage as a, as a classic Disney villain or anything like that? And and I sort of worked out eventually that the answer is no, just like it's, 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 it's the answer, the, 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 as, as um, Astrid just said, the, uh, the, the sidekicks are running the show f- for the stage. And what I, what I felt like it played like was, as if you know these uh, this assemblage of, of comedic actors had retold a Disney story um, and and done it yeah so the Marx Brothers took over the, a Disney movie for once and that 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 sort of once I worked out that's what it was and it was the, I tell you what scene it was it was the restaurant scene that made me go oh okay oh right I've got it oh it's just a collection of sketches strung together <laughs> yeah but but that's the pleasure that, yeah. that, that you know it's, it's what's funny about it is that it doesn't make sense it's not that it doesn't make sense it willfully doesn't make sense it does also have this you know quite a strong narrative running through it in classic Disney style you know that they don't they don't ever really drop the kind of the patcher storyline it's not you know 
that's kind of kept going with, you know, with traditional kind of romantic music and, uh, you know, and there are stakes there, even though they consistently undermine the stakes, you know, for, for comedy effect. I mean, I would, I would um, be interested to sort of, well, I guess think about whether or not the film is trying to, given what Alex said about the continuities uh, that the film potentially has in terms of its humour with other Disney films, but then what it what it does is then sort of centralises those elements and rather than keeps them at the margins through sidekicks, brings it back into the kind of central character. So you have that. Then you have this idea of the how the film sets up the narrative stakes, i.e. it sets up uh, Patch's character, it sets up Cusco as the emperor, then it also sets up uh, the villain, uh, who I also always think is in it more than she is. Because there's a whole bit where she's just not there, and then it's that's where I think the um, the restaurant scene is really good because it brings all the it's all the main characters. I mean, we haven't even got onto Kronk yet, but we will. Um, <laughs> but that's a good sequence because it has everybody everybody together. I mean, I just I just wonder whether what the whether the film tries to really. Um, uh, press upon the audience this idea of, uh, and there are references in the dialogue, certainly within the first ten minutes, to patterns of behaviour, groove, obviously, generally, um, but this this idea of of sort of normality that the film is sort of right. Okay, well, it, the production is clearly rushed, or it it was um, uh, disrupted. People know about this, so what we'll do is we'll just kind of fold that into the film, and we'll and we'll make it this. Um, quite expressive i think the opening musical number with tom jones um uh which is something i never really thought I'd, I'd say in the context of a disney feature film but the opening number with tom jones really does sort of uh, it is very expressive it reminds me a lot of um uh almost there from princess and the frog and friend like me and all these sorts of musical numbers that that become quite abstract in terms of their their kind of visual design and the space um, and time is all off. As, um, so I think there's something interesting about the, the style of the film at the start that, that is quite bold in announcing its reflexivity to kind of qualify, um, or maybe, I don't know, to appease an audience that is going to be aware of the troubled production. You know, it's kind of folding p- the potential reception of the film into the film itself. Um, and then it sort of settles down a little bit. Um, it calms down, it, it sorts, sorts introduces, I think it calms down when it, it shifts the action to, to Pasha, who's voiced by... Um, uh, John Goodman and it sort of shifts to his family life and I remember while we were watching the film Alex um, made a, an insightful point about uh, his wife being what is it the, the first openly pregnant woman in a Disney feature film yeah um, I'm going to make another insightful point I'm good at them uh, that isn't it if is that's true if that is true let listeners let us know I think it might be the first openly pregnant um, character in a Disney movie but, but I can't believe it is true given how many mothers there are um, in the back catalogue um, but I wanted to sort of riff on what you're saying there, Chris, um, about fantasy. And I think I've, I've worked out what I'm trying to say is that is that the rhetoric of fantasy in this movie is subversive rather than constructionalist. And that's different to almost every Disney movie I've seen. In fact, every Disney movie I've seen off the top of my head, where the moments of subversion take place in something like Aladdin, um, it's to sure help us enjoy and understand the world and and play along with it and enjoy it, but but the moments of of imagination in Aladdin are in the world building, are in the sort of sense of 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 being in the marketplace. You know, the the use of of animation and the use of sort of storytelling and narrative to to make us feel like we can see uh, the the fire in the cave of wonders, and that's that's so sort of you know 
what Disney does. That's it's its whole animation factory is about getting us to feel the imaginative, rich potential of and and believe despite ourselves in what what we're seeing. But what this does is that the imagination of the film, the focus of the imagination, is how it can disrupt rather than how it can build. Um, yes, the plot's there, but the plot's really just there so that we can have these imaginative moments that that alter it, change it, um, you know, fold it into itself. And that's where you feel like you're watching a fantasy. It's not actually in the world building, it's in the world deconstruction. But isn't that the, I suppose, that the idea of the fantasy uh, can be or could be traced back to the fact that this is very much from Kuzco's point of view, um, i.e. that the, the, the narrative voiceover immediately frames the events that, that we're about to watch is happening in the past. And so, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to start suggesting that the film is truncated and, and has that kind of reflexive tone, or even that it's edited in quite a frenetic manner because of the fact that it is, we're supposed to be in the mind of Cusco. But there is something quite interesting about setting up, think about all the other the kind of Disney films that come um, come before it that announced, you know, Circle of Life, and you have these big bombastic ensemble um musical numbers versus this film which begins in a quite a personal manner with that voiceover and i just wonder whether um i don't know there's something to be said about the fantasy of his i don't know the the, the fantasy of alama's subjectivity the discussion of whatever um but it seems like there's something interesting about fantasy in the way that you described it because it seems the film seems to be a haphazard collection of events that align quite nicely with a protagonist who doesn't really know what's kind of going on. Although he does consistently, you know, uh, assert his authority on what, you know, on his take of what's going on, like, because, you know, with the, with his narration where he keeps popping up, you know, like even, uh, you know, he keeps popping up to remind everyone whose film this is and whose point of view they should be, considering you know and the fact that he's even narrating a scene where he's not conscious in you know where he's in the bag in Kronk's bag and so yeah you like it's 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 kind of like a magic trick that the film pulls that you're that you're um being taken along on this ride by this you know kind of omnipotent narrator who knows everything who sees everything but he was also in the film and you know I just I think that it's kind of yeah I don't know it's it's it, like if you if you kind of pull it apart or question it too much then yeah like it does all fall apart and I think it, you know Alex has got an interesting point where it's it's that you know that's the source of the fantasy that it's the kind of this like destructive um, kind of pulling apart of of the of the narrative and the story well the, and the pulling apart though comes you know, in, in some cases quite, um, you know, quite conventionally, i.e. the narrative voiceover that is, is seems to occur in a different time and space. It seems to occur after the film has already taken place. Um, and I quite like the idea that in some capacity he's a, he's a, he's a spectator. You know, he is, he is. And this is what I kind of mean about the film trying to anticipate something about the audience that he he's being immediately framed as both participant and uh spectator and that's why his narrative voiceover as you say seems to seems to intrude onto the film at moments where 
yeah, he could either he wasn't even there or he wasn't conscious and these kinds of things. So he's already he's already seen he's already seen the film. But then there are other bits where um, he stops the film completely, and that actually that's the bit that reminds me of Aladdin. You know, made you look with the genie where he stops the film at the end of Aladdin, where where the genie pulls up the the film frame and you can see the sprocket holes on the side of the celluloid. In a similar event, you get a similar kind of thing. You know, you get you get him stopping the film. Um, when he's a llama, turning to the audience and drawing on the celluloid. So there's something, yeah, he's he's doing he, these reflexive gestures, which are very sort of deconstructive, or certainly in the, very deconstructive in the way that the animation scholars have understood these traditions of deconstruction that are making reference to the, the kind of um, uh, labour and, and artistry that produced them. That deconstructive or that reflexive deconstructive rhetoric, it seems to be married in the in the in the idea of fantasy, it's the thing that connects animation and fantasy. Again, we should do a podcast on those two things. But um, <laughs> that that sort of reflexive treatment of the fact this is a feature film um, that is printed onto celluloid that has characters and narrative jeopardy and all these sorts of things. That's something that's that's sort of slightly different. And yeah, Alex, you're right. The a thing that was previously at the at the closing credits of a, of a of a film nine eight nine years ago is here front and center and i guess that you know to speculate on why listeners chose this as our first feel-good fantasy animation i think one of the things about is that it's so gleefully trivial because of all these things like it's so gleefully lacking in consequence um and i and none of these words are meant as a critique it's that's the joy of it is that that none of this matters none of the events matter what matter is the jokes and that it's funny and i can totally see why because of all that it's a film to stick on again and a film to sort of you know enjoy being in its company because that's sort of what it's going for well yeah and i think after a decade of um big emotional punchy kind of uh you know well films from the Disney studio that you know can be seen in moments as being emotionally manipulative I think it is just a relief and a joy to see something which yeah kind of constantly comments on and undermines the stakes and plays everything for laughs um you know so that you can just sit back and enjoy the journey of like the road movie actually yeah that's an interesting point that because you mentioned earlier about the buddy movie and that's really that's really the relationship certainly the relationship between uh patcher and um uh cusco is the is the sort of thing that the 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 centers the film um but you'll obviously have another buddy you have two buddies sort of running simultaneously um so you have uh uh, Yzma, but then you also have Kronk. So Kronk, the sort of breakout star, if you like, of the uh, of the film, voiced by Patrick Warburton. Um, Kronk would go on to get a, a feature length, um, ultimately direct to video, but but no less uh, valuable for it. Uh, Kronk's new groove, or the Emperor's new groove, to Kronk's new groove. Um, but you have these two buddies, and the relationships between those two, I think, are really interesting and really really nicely structure the film in terms of its pairing and um, and and as I said, I think that restaurant scene that you that you both mentioned is is that kind of theatrical moment or that Marx Brothers film just in the middle, that seven-minute cartoon that plays in the middle of the film uh, that brings all of those four characters together, that, that plays with kind of foreground and background space, uh, on-screen and off-screen space, um, and does so by playing with sort of front of house and the kitchen spaces of a, of a, of a cafe or, or restaurant. Uh, but I suppose at the same time, uh, you know, 
I was going to, and I don't know the answer to this, I, I, I obviously have seen the film, but I was just wondering in terms of what the film's then actually about, because uh, I'd hate to sort of reduce the film down to a series of skits that it is kind of trivial. Is there a narrative there? Is it, or is the narrative simply that Kuzco wants to build his sort of utopian, um, dare I say, magic kingdom uh, on top of um, Patch's house and decides that he just wants to move it next door is that really all that the film is about or is there is there something else going on well well i just think that um it, what it's about is not about the narrative i mean it's i mean we are you know guilty of being a bit too obsessed that a film has to tell a coherent um well it does tell a coherent story it's perfectly coherent it just doesn't really matter it's not why we're, we're digging what's happening it's because um, of all these other things. And so it matters in the same sense that it matters that um, Fredonia chooses to invade other countries or not in duck soup. Yeah, it, it matters because it's the, it's the platform from which to disturb. Um, so it, it, it doesn't matter in the sense that it's not, it's not why the film is enjoyable, but of course it, because it matters. Um, it's just, you know, it's not, if the film doesn't have to be about um, what its narrative is about to be deep, it's a profoundly deep experience to watch a film that brings people joy. Um, and, and that joy is complicated and nuanced and I don't really have answers to what it means, but it's certainly rooted in this, you know, release from, um, you know, all this sort of meaningful consequence and, and a, a celebration of anarchy. Yeah. I think nominally the film, what, you know, what the Disney studio would want you to take away is that the film is about friendship and, you know, learning to belong to a community and not being selfish and, you know, all those things. Um, but I think it's, yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, we, ha- we haven't really talked about Cusco-topia. <laughs> it's interesting that you raised that because I think that that is, um, you know, that's, that's something that... Um, again, from the film's production history, changed so much because um, the way we read it now is that, you know, in in a sense, like, you're aligning theme parks with the antagonists or, like, the antagonist forces. So you've got, like, Yzma's lab ride and then Cusco's desire to build a theme park for himself or a massive pool with a slide for himself and destroy the village. Um so and then that doesn't happen at the end because he you know he learns to like have a summer house that's just among the villagers and so you could read that as the emperor's new groove like rejecting the disney model of old um but actually if you if you watch sweatbox you realize that it's we we only have sting to thank for that narrative thread because up until um you know really i think really close to um release even um the ending was that he just chose a different that Cusco chose a different hillside to build um Cuscotopia on and uh Sting wrote this uh long letter to the Disney studio saying that um he would have to withdraw from the project if that was the ending of the film um because you know he had spent the last 20 years defending um indigenous people and and to have a, a film that kind of just um, made it totally fine for for the Disney company to come in and and destroy villages of of indigenous people to build their theme parks. You know, he, he just couldn't align himself with that. And they they all sat down and thought, oh, okay, yeah, maybe he has a point. So they changed the ending. So he still builds it, but he just builds the 
he just builds it on a neighbouring hillside. So so the the kind of complex, the entertainment complex is still um, is still going to happen. It's just the the producers are a little bit more um, uh, savvy in this case. Cusco, he's because he's learned, as you say, these values of, of friendship and 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 so forth. Um, it's still going to be built. It's just going to be built, built kind of next door. And actually, the film frames that decision as something that feeds into um, the values that you described. And actually, the way you were describing the film and the characters actually, you know, in many ways, it, the film does support the values of the quote unquote Disney formula. It just it just doesn't seem to make that or those values the primary concern of the of the film. I'd like to do a bit more research, perhaps into into Disney theme parks in the year two thousand. I know that there was a a kind of millennium celebration or a, a kind of two two year long um, millennium celebration, um, Walt Disney World millennium celebration that ran from uh, October nineteen ninety nine to January two thousand and one. Um, so I'd love to do more about, given the film and what it what it's kind of saying about this, um, as you say, this because Cotopia. Um, because you're right, it's strange that it's associated with his degree of megalomania at the time. Yeah. And his and his redemption comes through the fact that he identifies or that he 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 obtains a friend in in Patch. I mean, his family is interesting anyway. Like as you say, like his the fact that he and I, th- I think that's right. He he kind of symbolizes that community, and you don't really get much of that community other than through his family. Yeah, and I I mean I think that the depiction of his wife is I mean I don't know I I kind of feel like uh I mean you can level this criticism at so many films but you know there's there's two female characters in this film basically and one is a witch and the other one is like a pregnant madonna in the kitchen who just likes washing up <laughs> Um, so <laughs> that's that's that then. That's that's the studio in a, in a nutshell. Actually, on the on the note of of the villain, then um, there's a couple of things that kind of came up as we were as we were doing our live uh, tweet along. I think we need another. I don't know whether we can call it tweet along. Is that a thing? Social media a thon. But anyway, um, our live watching of the film. There are a couple of things that we haven't really talked about. One was uh, anthropomorphism, i.e., you know, the, the use of animals, which is something that has come up a lot. I think in this. Um, uh, in this podcast and, and hopefully regular listeners will know my obsession with, with registers of anthropomorphism. Um, so hopefully we can get to talk about that, but also the depiction of the villain as well. Um, and this idea of her sort of how the film qualifies her grotesqueness. And I don't know whether, um, yeah, I mean, I, I know that, that when we were doing the tweet along, Alex mentioned that her vilification. So I just wondered, in, I don't know, in terms of the character construction of, of Uzma, how that works with, with villains that we, that we know, you know, how, how in terms of the, her construction as a character, her body type, her representation, that kind of thing. Well, I think her body type is very different to someone like, you know, Ursula in The Little Mermaid. But I think it's similar in that, you know, she's vilified for being an older woman with a strong sexual presence. Um, and, you know, there's like cons- so many references to her age and kind of revulsion around her appearance. Um, you know, they say, you know, oh, look at those wrinkles. What is holding that woman together? You know, this woman's scary beyond all reason. Um, and there's a kind of snide comment um, about how young Kronk is, you know, he's in his late 20s, kind of suggesting that it's inappropriate for a woman of Yzma's age to be associating with a young man like Kronk. Um and I think, I don't know, I mean, I think 
in in one way you could see that as like it it kind of encapsulates Disney's drive to find something like new and fresh, like something different from you know that breaks with the traditions of. Because she says like um, that she served the emperor for many many years, and I don't know. I th- I think you could probably see that as some kind of comment on the like structures of the of the of the Disney studio. But I I don't know. I just think like for me it's. I I love Yzma's character and I think Eartha Kitt is an amazing voice artist. Um, But I think she was, um, in the sweatbox, she she definitely voices her disappointment at the direction that they took Yzma's character in after it got, you know, after they went off from Kingdom of the Sun into Emperor's New Groove. Because I think she was a much more complex character before. Um, And then she kind of turns into this, joke villain and she's still amazing and very funny but I think it is yeah it's kind of there's also some like a bit of a kind of shame around that yeah I don't really have too much to add to that I mean I think all of what I would support everything we've all said about uh her and I the only thing that, that, that what I what struck me and perhaps it should have struck me years ago was that you know her part of her grotesqueness is her sort of angular um, waif-like body, and the, the sort of film makes a lot about the, the the angle, the contorted angles she's able to position herself in, and the sort of um, almost spectral-like body that's very sort of um, it's it's barely present. And it just just made me think, make, have a broader sort of thought about villains, and that we often think, well, I certainly at least often think of villains as vilifying fatness, but actually, in a way, this is vilifying. Sort of the angular, the angular body, and and actually, um, that's got as much of a heritage in Disney lore as as anything else. If you think of, uh, you know, characters like Jafar, um, or, or um, I mean, the, my mind's escaped um, at the moment, but um, I've got lockdown fever. But um, uh, but but that's that's an interesting thing about the body politics that I hadn't really thought. That actually soft. Uh, characters are are go- are soft of heart, and and angular characters are angular of heart, and there's something interesting about that. And also, her body, you know, her body gets attacked twice in the film. Like she kind of gets, you know, almost literally tarred and feathered twice in the film. Like once in the swamp and once at Patch's house, um, you know, and gets turned into into a human pinata. So, I mean, I guess it's like, uh, you know, and then and then her punishment is getting turned into a kitten which is the kind of polar opposite, you know, a soft, tiny, cute, round kitten, which is obviously like the polar opposite of an angular witch. Well, I think um, this idea of, I mean, we talk, what we're effectively talking about is is kind of character design and and, and Disney's tradition. And, and, you know, I, I suppose many studios uh, in terms of animation, some of the design, design decisions that are made um, around certain kinds of villainous characters. So I think the link to Jafar is absolutely right. Um, so to kind of Dr. Facilier from Princess and the Frog. Um, I think what kind of networks all of these characters together is, is a sort of, I don't know, an ability or, to, or, or how we engage with unruly bodies um, in whatever form that kind of takes. So obviously Ursula from The Little Mermaid is not um, uh, thin and angular and geometric in the same way, but she's equally as unruly. And part of that unruliness comes from her her hybridity between a kind of sea creature and a, um, a human. Uh, and that same unruliness is not afforded to Ariel. She is a similarly, uh, or she is similarly a character of, of um, 
kind of mixed genealogy, or she is is she is human and non-human at the same time. But Ursula's uh, manifestation of that kind of collision is is framed as um, unruly. Um, equally, I think you know Jafar the way that he's drawn this sort of tall, angular um, versus the character in you know in the same film Aladdin. Uh, the Sultan, who is round and soft and squidgy and looks a little bit like Santa Claus. Um, there are deliberate sort of decisions in terms, or certainly deliberate decisions being made, I think, in, in terms of character design it, that speak to a broader sort of um, question about what we do and how we kind of manage these transgressive um unruly bodies uh, and part of i think their villainy certainly whether it's ursula whether it's um uh, yzma whether it's uh, who's very kind of spidery and spider-like and and that kind of thing um comes from their unruliness that in some way it's it sort of speaks to a broader um i don't know a broader question mark over what we then do with with or how we can manage um these sorts of unruly bodies that draw attention to questions of beauty or so forth. Um, so I think she's very much in the, in a long line of, of Disney, Disney villains. But as I said earlier, I always think that she's not in it enough. And, and I, and I hadn't kind of made that connection to that, the Sweatbox documentary in terms of, um, I wonder whether a lot of the films re rehashing and re-editing comes at a cost to that villainous character. Uh, and also Patcher as well. I'd love to know more, to create to create more jeopardy to know a bit more about that indigenous community and and, and that kind of thing that then gives a bit of narrative weight to to Cusco's decision later on but um in terms of the character design she's she's kind of terrific really but the balancing act you know by 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 losing all that what you get is probably the quality of the movie that's meant we're talking about it right now which is that it replaces um, an immersion in narrative with with this ability to to not care yeah because actually does it really like you know it, it does it matter this i'm sort of trying to voice the the intended reaction yeah do, do any of these characters actually matter probably not but that's that's that again that's kind of why they're pleasurable to spend time with because um you know i'm i always i'm always buckling against the um against the, the temptation to read films like this very um mimetically as some sort of you know representation and that that what we're tr what what the film is asking us to do or, or it doesn't really matter what the film's asking us to do what the film does is um allow us to sort of um place ourselves in the world when a film like this so clearly um is trying to set up a wall between um you know all these characters and 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 ourselves there's a distance a critical distance between viewer and spectator uh, between spectator and film that's intended here and it's and and by jettisoning our concern with um the villain her motivation the world she lives in the fact that her I, her identity doesn't seem to make much sense the fact that we know nothing about her um all of these things may take away from our ability to see them as rich fully rounded characters and there's political problems with that but they add to the effect the film's going for. But is it also because we're all we're always going to be distanced because of the 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 opening or that kind of link that Astrid made to, to Tarzan? You know, that it's always it, it, it looks like it's going to be a Disney film or whatever that means, and then isn't. And then we have these distancing strategies of of the voiceover, and then when the film stock is is stopped and he draws on on the on the cell, um, you get these moments that are deconstructive, yes, but their purpose. Um, you know, if their application is deconstructed, their purpose is that they're always they always keep the spectator at an arm's length, and actually, maybe that's part of, as you say, it's part of the pleasure of the film that we're always we're always being maintained at a sort of critical distance. Um, 
we're always there's always a sort of reflexivity between us and the film um in a way that i don't think is present in in other disney films to that sort of level of intensification yeah i'd, I'd probably agree with that so we you need to talk about anthropomorphism i suspect at this point in the podcast chris i do well yes um and in fact, it's 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 your point. I mean, the film itself is a transformation narrative. So the film obviously starts with Cusco as, or it doesn't. It starts with him as a llama. Then it reveals him as a human, a sort of arrogant um, young prince king. And then it becomes a becomes a transformation narrative where, and this is you know this is to quote to quote Disney, it's a tale as old as time. You know, in terms of um, fairy tale narratives, transformation, metamorphosis. Um, and therefore, you then get a character who becomes, even though he looks like a llama, actually acts like a, a human. And then there are interesting moments. And that again, that's maybe why the restaurant scene is so interesting, because he he is dressed up to look like a human. And you have this weird kind of human turned into llama, dressed up as a llama, uh, dressed up as a human llama of a different gender, I think. Isn't he dressed as a woman? Yeah. So this sort of layering of performance. So maybe that's what it is. It's not critical distance or reflexivity or it's i mean it is those things um it's parody it's mockery um it's uh screwball comedy but it's also performance there's so many different levels of performance kind of built into it one because we know Cusco performs a lot anyway we have the tom jones opening but we and he's very much part of that he is a performer um he lies in terms of his relationship to patrick at the start you know he lies about this so he can get him out of trouble and then he sort of turns on him um but his whole thing is about masquerade and performance um and so this sort of turn to anthropomorphism allows the film to to create these multiple levels of uh, humanity. And I mean that in both the looks like a human, but also this idea of, um, you know, sympathy and authenticity and, and, and not benevolent. You know, he's he's many things, this character. Um, but it was actually, Alex, something that you said online about, you know, that he reverts to certain humanity. You know, I think he, I can't remember exactly what you said, but it sort of... It, in the film, Cusco reverts to his most animal when he is wounded. Yeah, well, it was—it's sort of—it's it's almost. Um, it's you know, it's the it's the fifty minutes into the story before the final um, battle climax bit, where um, the character is at his lowest um, and sort of has this sort of moment of existential despair and wants to obliterate himself. And so his way of expressing that is to is to actually become a llama, is to sort of take off his anim- his uh, human clothes and go find a pack of llamas and try to join in their way. There's a sort of moment where he um, starts to try and eat grass, right? Or and um, and and beca- you know, it, it seems to be his intention at that moment is to become a llama and live his life as a sentient llama for the rest of his life. Um, and um, and I'm aware, I'm, and like the film, I'm now taking a distance back from the words I'm saying out loud, um, <laughs> and encourage um, re, uh, listeners to to crib that little bit of um, thing and just release it out of context and see what readings people can interpret in it. But there is some odd thing about like you know um, the film expressing a destruction of the self as an embracement of of, of animal identity. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, I'm I'm trying to think of which other films do this, but I feel like, you know, that, that kind of trope of like, it takes him, you know, turning into a llama to become a real human, that, you know, that's sort of like, I feel like we've seen that thing a lot, right? It's not unexpected in Disney. Who hasn't? encountered the classic man becomes llama llama learns to be man story it's you know (laughs) 
a tale as old as time. I mean, I can knock that out over breakfast, you know, before breakfast, I've done that. Like Pinocchio, actually. I mean, I, I think that the, the transformation scene of Cusco into a llama is really reminiscent of Pinocchio's transformation into a donkey, don't you think? Uh, sure, although I don't like people to mention that sequence because it terrifies me just to think about it, um, which is why we've not done it on the podcast yet. But um, uh, yeah, but the problem with what I'm, I guess, what I've found interesting is that in in that, you know, the whole terror is that that Pinocchio might cease to be and he'll become Donkey. Whilst um, I just found it interesting that the, the narrative stakes of this movie seem to be that um, Cusco makes a sort of active choice to sort of reject to to, to to, to recognise that he is no longer useful as a human and so could only be useful as Llama. Well, this is this is the narrative of uh, Brother Bear a few years later on. So this is Disney's film t- from 2003, which I mentioned um, earlier, that has a similar kind of transformation narrative. So uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays, or is the voice of Kenai, um, a human who, um, after killing a bear, turns into a bear, to, or he's turned into a bear to teach him to sort of see the world through through the eyes of the the other essentially um and to understand human relationships brotherhood all these sorts of things um but what the film does interestingly is that it refuses unlike uh this film and also unlike uh, uh beauty and the beast it refuses to um acknowledge the turn back uh, and brother bear is uh, i guess an interesting film in that sense because it, it, it can i is transformed back into a bear at the end so he he rejects humanity and, and goes to so it, it, it's just, again and this is why I think these these movies at the start of the 2000s are interesting because a lot of the stuff that the film uh, Empress New Groove does maps onto other later Disney films so maybe it's you know the film is more influential than we perhaps give it credit for but um, it maybe is the start of at least Disney thinking a little bit about um, I don't know it, it, it is the you know, the film is the the film is interesting well the Empress New Groove is 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 um, I don't know, pleasurable because it invites a questions or interrogates the very question of casting what you do when you cast animals as lead characters, or it plays with the transformation narrative. Um, and it acknowledges that and to have the first line, I'm that llama immediately foregrounds the anthropomorphic register to the film that, that is being um, again, not, not reflexively engaged with, but I certainly think there's an interrogation in the film or an acknowledgement of, what it means look what disney does when we cast animals as lead characters or humans as animals who dress up you know there's something around that that there's that there's a uh, a collision between nature and culture or or um uh, animal and, and human that is at least a little bit more interesting perhaps um in this film but that moment also sets up the absurdity of the plot point yeah which is at some point in this movie uh, i will become a llama you know like in all those other disney movies yes yeah. And you know um, that that's and and I guess what it's also playing with is the our expectations in that um, it, is it clear at that moment I'd have to rewatch it whether he, this is a talking llama that's speaking or whether this is a man turned into a llama because it's perfectly feasible that this that, that that those first three minutes is setting up a film just featuring an anthropomorphized llama. I mean the, the opening of Ratatouille right has a voiceover by a rat. It says, um, he says this is me. This is me. Sorry. No, uh, you're absolutely right. That's exactly how Ratatouille begins. It begins with a freeze frame, and Remy says, "This is me. I'm a rat." Right. And so it's but, a similar but that thing. Isn't a, a rat in a human, a human in a rat's body that is a rat that is sentient and omniscient and able to give us a voiceover. Um, and and there's an ambiguity in the beginning of Ember's new groove. I think 
remembering the scene rightly, about whether what we're about to watch is a film about a llama or a film about a man trapped as llama. So even in that moment, it's not only setting up the absurdity of this being a story about a llama, but it sets up the absurdity of Disney anthropomorphic convention. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that ambiguity, I've not really thought about it in that way, that ambiguity works works kind of both ways. It could be pursued in two different directions. One as a, yep, Disney's in the business of talking animals, but or, or it's uh, or it's taken in the, in the route or the journey that it is, which is... Uh, that kind of transformation transformation narrative um i'm 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 conscious of i mean i'm just wondering are there any kind of final before we perhaps ask for favorite little bits favorite scenes um is there anything in terms of our our notes that we haven't haven't covered um i guess the musical numbers aren't i mean is this a musical per se no so you have an opening i think if there's no i want song it's not a musical (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it can't be an I want. Well, given that I want songs normally come between forty-five and fifty minutes into the runtime, uh, if it was to do so in this film, we don't. That would be one of the closing songs, I think, because <laughs> it's so short. Um, but yeah, I haven't I really thought should, about the music. I think we should all be very thankful that it's not the musical it was supposed to be. Well, I don't. I don't. I mean, yes, yes. Um, one can. I mean, only it imagine- depends how you feel about Sting, but. I mean, well, the songs that were trailed in the uh, documentary, The Sweatbox, I feel like we've all escaped. We've, we've all dodged a, dodged a um, bullet. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's it's given, what is it, Phil Collins did the music for Tarzan. It's 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 very, in, lo- in lots of ways, the film is postmodern, but then in lots of ways, it's very much of its time if you locate it within a, a sort of late 90s, what the Disney studio was doing. And so, you know, I'm sort of torn between it being it breaking all this new ground, but then also actually being in many ways business as usual in terms of how it was conceived, um, its influences. Ultimately, it's become something else. But um, I think you can certainly trace some of the, the, the qualities in the film, as I said, to, to the film's. Uh, that came that came kind of before and, and and after. I mean, I really like the reflexivity. I think, yeah, the opening musical number again perhaps sets it up as a musical, and then you don't really have songs again. You have more sort of evocative um, uh, a, a soundtrack. You have instrumental music and and things like that. It's 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 never as as bombastic in its music as it is in the opening sequence. Um, but yeah, I really like the reflexive register of the of the film. Do we have any yeah favorite bits, favorite moments? Um, obviously, we've mentioned the restaurant, but I just wondered. Any other thoughts? Uh, I mean, Kronk doing his own theme music yeah. is is the film's <laughs> highlight for me. <laughs> Which I, didn't, yeah, I, I read I somewhere that it's like was it like an ad lib or something or that that I mean, Kronk. Yeah, we could do and should we do? We'll do a follow up podcast on just Kronk, but he's a really he's a really interesting, very knowing, silly. Um, uh, and yeah, I, I put this on Twitter, but Patrick Warburton's voice performance—he's got a very decent. He's you know Brian from uh, Brian. He's uh, uh, Joe Swanson from uh, Family Guy, but he's very um, yeah. He's got a very good and also has done a lot of work voiceover in computer animated feature films. Um, uh, so I think yeah, he's he's kind of great as 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 Conk really. Uh, Alex, I remember you saying that you'd like this film a lot more if David Spade wasn't in it, but I mean yeah, he's fine. I just don't like. I just, I just, I can remember watching him in so many naff 90s sitcoms playing like awful 
awful, awful human beings that are supposed to be funny. Um, so I just I can help, can't help picture him um, when he says things. So that's not good. But I guess that's my baggage, not his. He's perfectly fine in it. I thought um, I like Kronk a lot. Um, we can do a podcast on Kronk. We haven't, um, but he's been um, uh, you know here here in spirit. Um, I also really enjoy the subplot involving Kronk and the squirrel. Um, which is another sort of parody of of anthropomorphic convention where he suddenly discovers he can speak to the squirrel by just sort of squeaking at it. Um, And they sort of become strange, sort of another buddy sort of combination going on. Um, And Kronk's interesting in that Kronk actually is quite an earnest character. Um, You know, he's not being witty and dry and subversive and knowing. Uh, he's none of those things, um, but he's hilarious as well. Yeah, the the shoulder angel sequences are genius. <laughs> yes, I've forgotten about them. They're also very good. Um, and, I was gonna and mention, the map chase as well. Go on. Sorry. I was just going to mention the map chase. Yeah, I think the map chase is 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 uh, uh, <laughs> it's it's interesting because it cites the way in which animation is often used in lots of of. of feature films as a shorthand i'm thinking of the indiana jones movies you know the plane going from one place in the world to the other um that again that tangling of the world of the telling and the world of the told suddenly the map that is usually used as a graphic becomes becomes part of the world itself which again perhaps stands as a sort of uh symbolic if you like as of the film as a whole that it constantly is it's sort of sort of moving between spectatorial positions and then at the end isn't it right at the end how did you get there before us and then they look at the map and they're like i don't know i don't know how that it shouldn't be possible yeah and it's also just really like wacky races so it's just really fun to be kind of like folding that familiar sort of uh, pleasure into the film. Well, and I suppose if you think about, you know, the cartoon, I mentioned earlier, the restaurant scene as being that sort of seven minute screwball comedy that occurs in the middle. This is like a, a Tom and Jerry chase or actually more more than likely very close to a kind of Wiley Coyote uh, Roadrunner cartoon where it has a series, which again, it work in these sorts of cycles um, that are just a series of vignettes that are put together. Um, uh, and so it works in a similar on a similar basis that you have these um, little. It's very the film is obviously very episodic, but that little chase sequence, you're right, is a nice callback um, to a kind of wacky races style. Um, yeah, kind of uh, golden age Hollywood cartoon. Uh, Alex, I can't believe you haven't mentioned the Wizard of Oz. Oh yeah, there's an obligatory Wizard of Oz uh, reference in it, isn't there? There's um, there's a joke uh, about lions and tigers and bears. You guys should really have a jingle for that. Every time that happens. Every time you see that you uh, spot the Wizard of Oz reference. Okay. So listeners who out there who have musical ability, uh, we will accept uh, MP3 files of jingles that we can play whenever the obligatory Wizard of Oz reference um, is, is uttered in a fantasy animation. But it is amazing that it does happen over and over and over again yeah um crazy i like um, that a jingle um all right well we best um you know we best uh, go go our separate ways watch cronk's new groove and then reconvene uh, reconvene in a, in a few weeks time um oh, so i have yeah. i have one final great one final point great very short is that uh i think that um cusco's uh slogan no touchy is uh, a very uh, potent slogan for our times. 
<laughs> Love it. That's why you, that's why you're on this podcast, Ashton. <laughs> Things like that. Um, yes, abs- I mean it's it's difficult when we're engaging with with sort of the the times that we're in, and and obviously um, recording these podcasts in a particular way because of particular um, kind of circumstances. But yes, that's that's a good. Maybe that could be the you know we'll we'll end on that uh, as a reminder of everybody in the words of Cusco, no touchy. I'll do some admin, shall I? Please do. On that note. Okay, so um, the Feel Good Fantasy Animation Party continues. We'll do another one of these in the next um, episode. Uh, the way you can uh, get involved in it is you can, uh, for the next few days, well, forever, continue to give me your suggestions. Um, so send them via Fancy Animation, uh, the various social media pages, just at us or um, hashtag feel good fan anim f-a-n-a-n-i-n the same as all our uh, tags every suggestion you make will go into the uh, fancy animation hat and i will draw some more out for another um insanely convoluted competition to find out who we will watch this time there'll be knockout rounds there'll be votes it all got thrilling last time if you have nothing else to do i think that should be the slogan thrilling if nothing else to do um so get your um suggestions in i've got a pretty brimming hat at the moment but i happily take a few more um we will vote on them uh, throughout the week so keep an eye on twitter uh, and then your favorite selection we will do on the podcast in two weeks time or you can uh yeah as alex said you can uh, follow us on on twitter on facebook you can follow us on the brand spanking new instagram um and give us your give us your suggestions uh we'd love to kind of talk about films that make you feel good certainly in these in these kinds of uh, challenging times and of course if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast um and part of our roster of of um uh, special guests to, to talk about your favorite feel good fan and then you can drop us a line uh with uh with suggestions too Astrid, do you have anything to uh, plug at moments? Can people watch some stuff to fill um, their long hours in uh, in social uh, isolation? Uh, yes, you can watch Quarantine if you are in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, Don't worry, it's not a searing take on our current situation. It's about uh, da- Morris dancing badgers. Um but it's uh, it's available for free on the BFI player, uh, and there's a link to it um, either on my uh, Twitter bio, which is my handle is at Mockduck Studios, um, or um, there's some more stuff and links and things on my website, which is um, Mockduck.co.uk. Terrific. Um, I think that's been us for another week, Chris. It certainly has. Thank you, um, Astrid, for. For joining us, certainly um, for, for taking on the or taking up the mantle of being our first returning guest. Um, certainly, yeah, in these in these times, it's nice to to be able to chat about a, a film with a with a I was going to say friendly face, but a friendly voice. Um, so, thank you very much for for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's an honour. Um, Alex, uh, you've now put me in the position where I'm going to have to do the goodbyes. So I'll say goodbye to you. I will see you or hear you again um, when we record our next one. Um, and yeah, please do keep the suggestions for um, future episodes. Episodes, and if you'd like to become a guest, do keep them coming in um, because they're really good for us to also. They give us a viewing list of, of things to to watch as well. So keep them coming in. Yeah, thanks very much, everybody. We'll see you next time for the next feel good fancy animation. Bye. <laughs>